Would you turn with me, please, to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans? Romans chapter 11. We've been working our way the last three weeks through this very, very difficult section of the book of Romans. There are some tough texts that we've been, uh, been working uh, our way through, difficult to interpret, somewhat difficult to, uh, to apply. I thought this last week that it's uh, attacking these, uh, these passages is a lot like mining for gold. Some of you know that Dennis Dixon, who works with our uh, high school and junior high young people, was for years a hard rock miner over in Montana, and he tells me that uh, sometimes you work through soft material and and you do very well, and occasionally you come to a layer of hard rock and you break the point of your pick and you have to work very hard to get through the rock. But sometimes the best, uh, the best layers of gold ore are found right, uh, right in those hard layers of rock. And uh, that's somewhat like, like uh, these passages. They're tough. They're difficult. And we've struggled with them. But you hit pay dirt when you're willing to face into them and try to deal with them. Paul says, all scripture is profitable. And even these passages that seem not to apply, that seem hard to understand, if we're willing to do battle with them, God will teach us. And I think uh, that's what we've been, been discovering. The issue throughout three, these three chapters is Israel. What can we say about the nation of Israel? In the first eight chapters, Paul tells us that everybody can come to Christ. Anyone who wants to come can come and, and submit to his lordship and submit to his love. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles, adults, children, red, yellow, black, white. All of those differences are irrelevant in terms of the good news. Anyone can come to Christ. And so the question is, what? Can we say about Israel, the special group of people that, that God elected and chose and put to a, 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 a particular task, well, what's happened to Israel? And that's Paul's concern in these chapters. He loves his people, and he wants us to understand God's ultimate purpose for, uh, for Israel. And what's saddened Paul is that it appears that Israel is no longer the center of gravity in terms of God's work in the world. Israel seems to be set aside. And then what can we say about Israel? Is God saving Jews? Does God have a, a plan, an ultimate plan for the Jews? Indeed he does. And this is the issue that Paul uh, summarizes. It's around to uh, discussing and summarizing in, in chapter 11. There are two questions that Paul raises. These are... Uh, Rhetorical questions he doesn't expect us to answer. Uh, this is a device that uh, writers and teachers use. They raise a question in, in the minds of their audience, and then they answer it. And that's what Paul does in chapter 11. In verse 1, he asks, did God reject his people? That is, are they rejected in mass? Uh, is it possible to be a Jew and to get into the kingdom of God? That's the question. And Paul gives an unequivocal answer. Uh, no, no, God has not rejected his people, by no means. The second question is raised in verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble? Did they stumble over the rock? That is, the Lord Jesus. 
the rock that's planted squarely in their path, which they have to deal with, did they stumble over that rock so as to fall beyond recovery? The NIV supplies, and I think they're right. Uh, Paul's point is, uh, are they rejected finally, ultimately? Does God no longer have a purpose for the nation of, of Israel? And again, Paul's answer comes through loud and clear. No, no, God has not rejected his people finally. Now, with that in the back of our mind, let's, let's go back and, and read uh, through the first section, verses 1 through 10, and let's see how Paul answers this question. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. Flatly answers his question, and then he documents that answer. I, myself, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abram. Uh, from the tribe of Bethlehem, uh, tribe of Benjamin, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Now, uh, as I said, Paul answers the question and then he documents it. He documents it it first from his own experience. Now, the key word in this uh, first section is remnant. There is a remnant. That's what Paul wants us to know. There's a hard core of faith in Israel. Has God rejected his people? No. Here and there you're going to find Jews that acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Lord. And they are the believing remnant. Uh, It's actually a term that uh, Isaiah was probably the first to, to use or to popularize. He was picked up by the other prophets and writers, preachers of the Old Testament to designate this uh, hard core of believers within Israel. Now, Paul says, I'm one of them. Look at me. Uh, if you want, if you want uh, uh, an example of a Jew who's come to Christ, I'm one. And what an unlikely example Paul would be. Here's a man who hated Christians, who hated Christ, who thought he was a phony, who probably heard him preach. Uh, Paul mentions in one of his letters that uh, he knew Christ in the flesh. He had had an opportunity to... Uh, to listen to him uh, as he preached on the streets of Jerusalem. And, and he had rejected him. He'd come to the conclusion that, that this man was a, was a fraud. And uh, he set out to destroy the Christian church. He was on his way to Damascus, the capital of Syria, bearing letters, giving him permission to imprison and punish Christians. And on his way, he met the Lord. And the Lord dragged him, kicking and screaming, into the kingdom the most unlikely candidate for the kingdom of God you would ever imagine. Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners, the least of the saints. 
he was aborted, he says. He, he was born in such an unusual way, God, in, in some sense, forced his birth. And he became a child of God. Paul says, you want an example of someone who's a believer, who's a Jew? I'm one. Now, you think of the most unlikely person that you know, unlikely to become a Christian, and that would be the Apostle Paul. That's the kind of man he was. And yet, God intervened in Paul's life and brought him into a saving relationship with, with himself. Paul says, I'm one of them. That's example A. Example B comes out of the experience of Elijah, the wonderful old 8th century prophet in Israel. Elijah prophesied at a time of deep, deep apostasy. The nation of Israel was at low ebb. They simply could not have been in a worse state spiritually. The king at that time was a man named Ahab. Uh, you probably don't uh, know Ahab, but you know his wife. She is the infamous Jezebel, uh, a woman that Max Dimmock, the, uh, the uh, Jewish historian, calls the meanest woman that ever lived. And uh, she was a Phoenician, and, and uh, Ahab married into the, to the Phoenician royal house in order to form an alliance with Phoenicia. And she came over into, uh, into Israel and brought all of her gods and from that point on, she wore the royal pants in the family. She ruled the roost. And the whole nation fell into Baal worship. As a matter of fact, Baal worship became the state religion in Israel. Things could not have been worse. And you know the story. Uh, Elijah had this uh, classic shootout with the, with the Baal prophets uh, and the prophets of the Asherim, the prophetesses, on top of Mount Carmel. And he won a decisive victory, and he was on his way back to Jezreel. And Jezebel said, I'm going to get you. And Elijah believed her. She was a woman to be believed. And he took off for uh, the Sinai Peninsula. He made the Boston Marathon uh, look like a short sprint. He ran all the way from Jezreel to, uh, to Mount Sinai, over 100 miles in a couple of days. I mean, he was picking them up and laying them down. <laughs> And when he got to Mount Sinai, uh, he started crying the blues. Lord, he said, I'm the only one left. They've all broken your covenants. They've all bowed the knee to Baal. They've all kissed the feet of Baal. And I, only I, am left. And God said, fiddlesticks. You're not the only one that's left. I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal and have not kissed his feet. Oh, what a, what a wonderful example of, of this principle of a remnant at the, in, the worst, in Israel's worst state, spiritually speaking. There were 7,000 in this hard core of faith, people who acknowledged the Lord as Lord and wanted to serve him and who loved him with all of their heart. Now, that's the point that, that Paul wants us to understand. At the present time, in Israel, he's talking about his Jewish friends. At the present time in Israel, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if you look at Israel, what you'll see is that some people, some Jews have very hard hearts, and some Jews have very soft hearts. We have Jews in our congregation who acknowledge Christ as their Messiah. Think of Bobby Hobson. I mean, what, a, what a wonderful privilege to be a, a direct descendant of, uh, of Abraham and to believe as the patriarchs believed 
and to given to have given her heart to uh, to her Messiah. That's a wonderful thing. She's one of the remnant. You see, chosen by God's grace. I I just discovered a, a few weeks ago that I uh, I'm one fourth Indian. I didn't know that my whole life. I grew up not knowing that. I was in Dallas and uh, my uh, my sister was showing me a picture of my grandmother. And I looked at her, and uh, I said, what, you know, what is her background? And my, my sister said, don't you know? And I said, no. She said, well, she was a full-blood Cherokee Indian. And I didn't know that. Uh, you know, so I don't know. It just made me feel real good <laughs> to know that, that I'm part Cherokee. I, I don't didn't have any significance. I'm, I think I'm the scalp E instead of the scalper. But... <laughs> But I was thinking about that. You know, I, that, that really does make me feel good to know that I'm, I'm... But you know what would really make me feel... I think I would even feel better if I knew that I was a Jew, that I had that kind of background, this rich heritage that the Jewish people have. And what Paul is saying is that some are coming out of that background and they're acknowledging Jesus Christ as, as their Lord and they're part of this, this believing remnant, you see? And they're chosen by grace. Now, don't stumble over these uh, these quotations from Isaiah and Psalm. They, Psalms that just sound awful when you read them. It sounds like God goes about hardening hearts. He looks over a crowd like this and he says, I'm going to harden your heart. I'm going to harden your heart. And no matter what you do, I'm going to harden your heart. That's not what he's saying at all. If you go back and look at the background of these, of these two Old Testament passages, you'll see that what happened in both cases is that people hardened their hearts and they hardened their hearts, and they hardened their hearts, and they hardened their hearts, and so finally God hardened their heart. But it was as a result of, of, of long-term hardness of heart. The passage in Isaiah 28.10, Paul doesn't quote the whole passage, but uh, the verses that precede it say uh, something like this, Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourself and be blinded. He's talking about the people in Isaiah's day in the 8th century who had turned their backs on God and were worshiping the, the, the Baalim, the Baals. And, and God says, all right, all right, go on blinding yourself to the truth. Shut your eyes, shut your eyes. And one of these days you'll open your eyes and you'll discover that you can't see it all. That's the point. And then the, the, the passage from Psalm 69 is the familiar passage that's quoted elsewhere in the New Testament where David says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. David, David loved God with all of his heart, and he loved the ark because it represented God's presence in the midst of the nation, and he longed to build a house for God, and people made fun of him. They ridiculed him. His own wife ridiculed him. And David says, you know, they're all embarrassed about me, but, but I know what the problem is. They don't have a heart for God, he's saying. They don't want God in their life. And, and as a result... He, he, he pronounces what you know, it amounts to an imprecation. It's a prayer. May their eyes be darkened. They've already shut their eyes, Paul says. And, and, and God will further harden their hearts. So it's not merely a matter of choosing some to be hard and some to be soft. That's not the point. Paul is saying that if you go on shutting your heart, closing your heart to God's love, after a while you, you won't be able to open it up anymore. Serious business. Can't, can't temporize, temporize with this truth. Can't play games with God. That that's, seems to be what, what Paul is saying. So to summarize this first section, what Paul is saying is there's a remnant. Has God rejected his people in mass? No. No. Here and there and everywhere you see Jews that love the Lord Jesus with all their heart. 
Now I have a question for you. Uh, where's the remnant here in this body? You know, the, a church is just a microcosm of Christendom in, in general. And what you'll find in a congregation like this is uh, just a little picture of, of what people are like everywhere. And as I look at this congregation, I see older, mature believers who have a real heart for God. And, and I see people who are not yet Christians. We have a lot of people coming who are just interested in the they're trying to find out more, and, and they're, 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 they're making progress toward knowing God. And then there are some baby Christians who have just come to Christ in recent months. And, 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 and sometimes, you know how little children are. When they get into the terrible twos, they, they say, no. Uh, you mothers know what that's like. They say, no. And we understand that because they're children. We say, son, pick up your blocks. No. Well, you don't get too concerned about that because they're just little children. And you know that in time, given good parenting and, and some maturing, they're, they're going to say yes. But my, what a sad thing it is, if, you know, if you have a 21-year-old living in your house and you say, would you please clean up your room? And he says, no, there's something different about that. See? And I think what Paul would want us to know is that it's very important that we ask ourselves a question, where, where are we in this in this process? Are, are, we, are we giving up more and more of our heart to Christ? Are we saying no to him less and less? We may be struggling and we may be having a diff, difficult time obeying. And that in itself is not a mark that, we're, that we, our hearts have never been changed. All of us struggle. But if we can come to some issue in our life and just say, no, I will not budge. Even though we call ourselves Christians, we have to recognize the fact that we, we may have never really been regenerated. We may never have made Christ Lord of our life. We've never come to the place that we're willing to say, all right, Lord, anywhere, anytime, any place, I'm with you. That's what it means to make Christ Lord. So I, I, I raise that question for all of us, for myself and for all of us. Are you part of that believing remnant? Struggling, perhaps, but you really have a heart for God and you really want to serve him. Or have you hardened your heart? That's a very important question. Now let's move on. Verse 11. The, the second question Paul raises. Again, I ask, did they stumble over the rock? Remember Paul's metaphor? Taken from the Old Testament, the Messiah is like a, like a huge rock in your path. You can't move him out of the way. Keep running into him. Keep falling over him. Try to lift him up and you hurt yourself. You can't, can't get away from him. He's just there. And, and people were stumbling over Jesus. And now uh, Paul raises that question. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? In other words, does God have a purpose for Israel ultimately? Or have they been moved off center stage forever? Now, he answers that question. Not at all. Not at all. God does have a plan for Israel. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, let me explain what Paul is doing, because it's a little difficult to follow his argument through here. He first establishes that God has a present plan for Israel. He is using them today in, an, in a remarkable way. This is one of those grand paradoxes of God. You know, one of the things you have to say about God is that it, it, he never does the same thing twice. 
The only thing consistent about God is that he seems to do things in, in inconsistent ways. He's not inconsistent. He's perfectly consistent. He just seems to be inconsistent from our standpoint. And he's always surprising us. And, and as we'll see, what God is doing presently with Israel is amazing. It's remarkable. We wouldn't do it that way. So God has a plan for Israel in the present, and then he moves to the future. Does God have a future purpose for Israel? And in both cases, his answer is a, is a resounding yes. He has a plan. Not at all. Uh, I'm reading the last part of verse 11. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. He's referring back to the Old Testament, the practice of bringing the 10% right off the top of all of their yield to the Lord. If that is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And he picks up on that metaphor of a root and branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches, that is, those Jews who belong to the original stock. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And you say that with your thumb behind your vest. A bit of arrogance and pride in that. They were broken off. I was broken in. I was grafted in. Granted, they were broken off because of unbelief. Uh, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. It's not anything you did. It's something that God did that you believed. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Don't get cocky, he says. Don't take for granted the fact that you're in. Because you may not belong to the vine, or to the tree. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness or the severity of God's sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they did not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Now, let me try to explain what, what, what Paul is saying here. And let me give you a little bit of history. It will, it will help you, I think. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Oh, moon-worshipping pagan. Had no knowledge of God. God bestowed his grace on this man. He was a caravaneer, ran a string of donkeys out of, uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees. If he lived today, he'd be a trucker, I suppose. And uh, God called him up into Haran, and there was apparently a bit of disobedience there. Abraham was reluctant to go down into Israel, where those Canaanites were, and finally God moved him down 
into Canaan. It was there that God revealed himself to Abraham in a new and fresh way, and Abraham believed God. God promised that through through his seed, the whole world would be blessed. He said, I'm going to bless you and enrich you, and I'm going to give you a seed, and, and through your seed, the whole world will be spiritually enriched. And he gave him a missionary job, told him to preach to the Canaanites. The Old Testament is a thoroughly missionary book. I hope you understand that. Missions didn't start with the first chapter of Acts. It begins uh, all the way, uh, yeah, all the way back to the to the uh, to the Garden of Eden, but you certainly see it in Genesis 12. Abraham planted himself in the main north-south trade route, right through the middle of of the land of Israel, and he built his little altar on which he worshipped the Lord, and he began to make proclamation in the name of the Lord. That's what the text means. He began to preach to the Canaanites. He had a son, Isaac, who was a, sort of a typical second-generation believer, you know, not, didn't quite have the, the grip on God that Abraham had, less evangelistic, less excited about his faith. Nevertheless, he was a believer, believed the covenants. Along came Jacob, Abraham's grandson, Isaac's son. Jacob was no rascal. He was. You couldn't trust him. He was always conning people, sort of making his way through life, tricking people and doing dirty things to them. And, and it really wasn't until the very end of his life that, uh, that he gave up trying to get things done his own way. I think that's what Hebrews means when it says he blessed his children, leaning on the head of his staff. When he was dying, he quit trying. That's the point. Gave up his own scheming and machinations, and he started trusting God to work. But he finally got the message. It took him a long time, and he finally got the message. And then his, uh, his descendants, the 12, became the heads of the 12 tribes, and these were the people that were all taken into Egypt. The reason God took them into Egypt was to regenerate them. Suffering will do that to you. It hurts, but it, you know, in the end, it gets you going again. And, and, and people got a better grip on God while they are in Egypt, and they came out trusting him, and it was God's plan that they be planted again in the land of Canaan and start start to fulfill their, their missionary call to make proclamation to the Canaanites. That's why the law was given. The law wasn't given to save. I've pointed that out time and time again. They were already a part of the people of God. The law was given so they could manifest the character of God to the people of Canaan. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, people are going to come to you and they're going to say, what kind of people is this who are kind to their enemies? who don't glean out the corners of their fields so the poor have some place to, to, to gather food, who care about trees and birds and, and animals and, and things like that. Uh, what kind of God is this that has this kind of compassion for people? Well, as you know, the, the, the progress of the nation was down from that point on. There was a little bit of a resurgence under David. And then the whole thing fell apart under Solomon. And under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the nation divided into two parts, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The northern kingdom quickly went into spiritual decline. They were taken off into exile, scattered. No one knows where those ten tribes are today. They're they're lost. And uh, God began to work through these two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin and and that, that, that nation went down and down and down and down spiritually until in the, in the 6th century, God took that nation off into exile to Babylon so they could get the, get the idol cure. And uh, a few, a very, very few came back into the land as missionaries. Isaiah refers to them prophetically as the remnant. 
And the prophets, uh, were, were, they were called upon Israel to return, to return to God and, and take up your place again as a missionary force in, in the world. And just a very small group of people came back into the land. And, and then the whole thing began to degenerate again into Talmud, in the study of Talmud. Instead of looking through the word to see the Lord and to, to, to make proclamation to the world of his goodness and his grace, the, the whole thing just degenerated into a, into Bible study. That's all it was. They just studied the Bible for themselves. And the end of the law became, instead of Messiah, it became Talmud, study of Talmud. And then the most amazing thing happened. God himself became a Jew. He became flesh, and he lived among his people. And and he made the same announcement, that God loves you, and, and he wants to use you in his plan to save the world. But as John puts it, though he came to his own, his own received him not. His own people rejected him. And one of the most pathetic sections in the entire New Testament comes from our Lord's lips as he sat on the slopes of the Mount of Olives and he looked down over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who slew the prophets, How often I would have gathered you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not, he said. And your house is left to you desolate. And he walked away. And they killed him. They crucified him. They said, we have no king but Caesar. And when the gospel was handed on to the apostle Paul, you you, you know where he went? He went right back to the Jews. Another offer, another opportunity. Started going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. Preaching the gospel. And they threw him out. And so he went to the Gentiles. And he got out on the streets and he discovered these people were this, this longing for God that his own people didn't have. The, the, the pagan world, the Roman pagan world was dead. The mystery religions had failed to satisfy. Judaism was bankrupt. Uh, their, their pagan religions, the old traditional pagan religions, the worship of the Greek gods was defunct. No one believed in anything. Most of, most of them were atheistic or agnostic. As Paul puts it, you were without hope and without God in the world. And Paul began to preach Christ. God loves us so much he came to earth to live with us and die for us and was raised again for our justification. And people began to flock into the into these houses to to hear the gospel preached and Gentiles in enormous numbers came to Christ. You know what happened to the Jews? They got jealous. They got jealous. They started looking at what God was doing with the Gentiles and they said, what in the world have we been missing out on? You know, this, this, this was all given to us at first and we rejected it. What are we doing? And Jews began to flood into the church. You see, all the apostles were Jews. The 5,000 that formed the, the first church in Jerusalem were Jews, so God wasn't rejecting his Jews. His people, what happened is that he, he moved, he shifted over to the Gentiles, and he started working with the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles started coming to Christ, the Jews got jealous, and they started flooding in. Now, it wasn't something that God uh, thought up at the last minute. He didn't look at the plan and say, oh, no, the wheels will come off this thing. I've got I've to do something else. You know, we know from reading the Old Testament it was his plan from the very beginning. You catch God by surprise. 
He worked it out this way. So everyone, women of Israel, that's the point. Everyone could get in. And here are all these branches that are starting to, to die and wither, and, and they get broken off, and God starts grafting wild shoots in, slips of wild olive, and, and the whole tree takes off. I understand that's actually what happens. I'm not a horticulturist, but but that's the way they do it. A tree starts to die, so you get a get a wild branch of wild olive tree and stick it in there and makes makes the stock stronger, root is strengthened, whole tree begins to grow again where it's about to die. That's exactly what what God did with Israel. You know, I was thinking uh, while I was reading through this passage and pondering this last week, it reminded me of what happened in the 1960s. Any of you remember? I was in California in a, in a church, big church. I was an associate pastor on a staff. There were 22 of us on that staff. Most of us were teachers, and that was probably one of the best taught group of people I've ever been around in my life. And it was a good church, but a little bit staid, a little stuffy, not much real concern for the world. We, we were sort of hung up on Bible study. We loved to study the Bible together. It was sweet. <laughs> it was to get together and talk about the Word. But not much outreach, not much interest in missions. Um, something started happening out in the world. These far-out, strange, weird, wigged-out Pagan kids started meeting Christ. This is what we call the Jesus movement. It just swept through the, you know, the, the hippie community, the street community. The kids started meeting Christ right and left, high school level, college level. All over the place, they started coming to Christ. And they started showing up in our church. And there they were with their hair down to here and these handlebar mustaches. You know, sitting with our uh, junior leaguers and... Uh, Engineers from Silicon Valley. I will, I will never forget. The president of Lockheed, his name is Stan Burris. He used to come to, to Peninsula Bible Church. Terrific Christian man. I can still remember him sitting there in a $400 Brooks Brothers suit right next to some kid with Levi's and long hair and no shoes and with his dog. He brought his dog to church. <laughs> One Sunday night, a, a kid held up a puppy. Stood up in the middle of the service, held up a puppy. and said, I have a puppy that needs a Christian home. <laughs> and they passed that dog down the aisle to someone on the other side that wanted a puppy. Crazy stuff. I remember one time a kid came up. He said, you take up this offering. And he said, there are people all over this group that, that are hungry. They don't have enough to eat. What do you do with all this money? And I said, well, you know, we do this and that. He said, listen, why, why don't we do this? Pass the offering plate, and if you need money, take it out. If you have money, put it in. How about that? <laughs> so we tried it. We tried it for about two or three years. That's what we did. People would come in. They, you know, if they needed money, they took it out. They had God had blessed them. They, they put it in, and God's faithful. He supplied our needs. Nobody, nobody, you know, there were no bills that went unpaid. God provided amazing stuff. These kids went everywhere sharing the gospel. They didn't care what people thought of them. Remarkable. Uh, that was the era when John Fisher wrote that song, Long hair, short hair, some coats and ties, looking past the hair and straight into the eyes. You know what happened? The old, rich stock of that church 
was revitalized, we began to take off. We began to get excited about sharing Christ with people on the outside from these wild branches that got drafted in. I still remember my father. I, my father was pastor of a church in Dallas, Texas, and it was, if you know anything of uh, the Schofield Bible tradition, my father was the pastor of Schofield Memorial Church. That's where Dr. Schofield used to pastor. And uh, it was another staid Bible-teaching church. And my father came out to California, and I took him into a fraternity house where Steve Newman and a number of other people that you knew were living. And Steve had hair down to here then and and a big, thick mustache and the strangest-looking guy I ever saw in my life. And he came into that fraternity house, and he sat down, and he listened to those kids talk about the Lord. And he went back and he shared with that whole congregation. We've got to open our hearts to these people. They know God and they love him. We can't exclude them. Now, see, that's what happened. The old stock came to life. And that's what Paul's illustrated. That's what he's describing here. That's what happened to Israel. Some branches were broken off. They were dead anyway. Some wild olive branches were grafted in. And the result is that the tree came to life. God's purpose, ultimately is to save the world. Now his future for Israel. My time's almost gone. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brother, so that you may not be conceited. A mystery, by the way, is not something that's strange in biblical uh, terminology. It refers to something that would, we wouldn't know if God didn't reveal it. It's something God has to tell us. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. That's the mystery. It was unknown in the Old Testament, at least to the extent that it's revealed in the New, that Israel would be hardened for a time so the Gentiles could come in. So then all Israel would be saved. And so then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're, they're enemies, that is, the enemies of God, on your account. But as far as election is concerned, that is God's ultimate purpose for them. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. The, he still loves them. The, the covenants that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would enrich the people of God, is, is still good. Still good. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that is, you Gentiles, and have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that you too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. That's simply another way of saying what Paul said earlier in his book, that all are sinful and we are all in desperate condition. The situation is, is tragic and cosmic. It includes us all. We're all sinful. If anybody gets into heaven at all, it's because of God's mercy. That's the point. It's not because of our goodness. It's the story of the uh, self-righteous Pharisee all over again. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. And Jesus said, that man didn't go home justified. The man that stood before God and said, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is the one who gets in. It's all it takes just to say, Lord, I can't do it by myself. Thank you. Thank you for paying the price, taking the rap for my sin. Have mercy on me. Um, 
George uh, MacDonald, in one of his books, uh, describes an epitaph of a man named Martin Elgenbrod. Here lies Martin Elgenbrod. Have mercy on my soul, O God, as I would do if I were God and ye were Martin Elgenbrod. See, that's what we want. We want mercy. That's what we would extend if we were God. And that's what God extends to us. That's the only basis on which anyone can get into the kingdom of God. It's, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, God can bestow mercy upon us. So we're all sinful, Paul says. So we all are recipients of, of God's mercy. Now, what Paul is saying here is that, yes, God does have a purpose for Israel. He says all Israel will be saved. Now, the question is, what on earth does Paul mean? Now, here, I don't have time to talk about this this morning. I may have to come back to it in a couple of weeks because we'll be touching on this issue again later on. Uh, There's a great debate raging over whether God has some plan for Israel here on this earth. Will Israel be returned to their land and will they have a king and will they... uh, Will they have a temple rebuilt and uh, will the priesthood be instituted again and will sacrifices be installed and this sort of thing? And others say, no, no, that's all fulfilled in the church. And and, uh, there won't be any, there's no promise uh, in the Old Testament that Israel, or in the New Testament rather, that Israel will have a place here on this earth. And the debate rages on and Christians are divided, good Christians on both sides, good Bible students on both sides. I I have... uh, I have studied this issue for over 25 years. I first came upon it when I was in seminary. I didn't even know that there was a problem until some professor pointed out to me in, in a class, and so I decided to go to work on it. I have read most of the literature on the subject. I've studied the Bible extensively for 25 years. I've talked to scholars. I've talked to our staff people. And I'm now ready to uh, give you my conviction on uh, God's future plan for Israel. I do not have a clue. All I know, all I know is that God has a plan for Israel. I just don't know what it is. It may be here on this earth. It may be, and and it does seem that Paul is saying that at the end, just before the Lord comes back, there will be an enormous influx of Jews into the church. That seems to be the point that he's making. Because of the large number of us Gentiles coming to Christ, the Jews will become exceedingly jealous and they will flood into the church. And I can hardly wait to see it. Boy, what an excitement. What excitement that will cause. We live in a weary old world. There's not much to wait for in this world. Uh, let me quote Arthur Miller in his book, After the Fall. He says, when you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then what a good father. Finally, how wise or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there, there was a presumption that it was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I would be justified or even condemned. At least there'd be some verdict. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. All that remained was the endless argument with myself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which is another way of saying I'm in despair. 
Now, that's a successful man in terms of this world's vantage point, wealthy man, prominent man. And he ends up in despair. Why? Because there's no one on the bench. There's no one minding the store. There's one, uh, no one controlling things. Am I, isn't it good to know that God has a plan? And we're not drifting through history. Everything is moving toward that time when our Lord Jesus sets everything right. Right now, he's drawing people into, the, into his kingdom, Jews and Gentiles. At some point, he has some plan for Israel that he's going to, he's going to fulfill because of his covenant with the patriarchs. And then he's going to wrap everything up and all the heartache and all the weariness and the divorce and the broken hearts and the broken bodies and and all the despair is going to be wiped off the face of the earth and everything will become a part of his glorious kingdom. No tears, no pain, no suffering, no hurt. He's going to do that for us. Now I just have to ask you... Where are you in terms of your relationship with Christ? Do you want to be part of that of that plan? Paul says all you have to do is call upon him. And then you can worship as Paul does. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.